You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, Real Presence Radio listeners. And we're happy to have you with us. My name is Jack Kennelly, and with me is my wife, Doreen. Good morning. And we are your hosts for this installment. We're in our second half hour of a two-hour program. And uh, we're happy to have, well, wait a minute. We're going to have Doreen. You're going to cue up a a joke here because we're kind of leaving them wanting right now. I think (laughs) everybody's waiting. Or they're relieved. They're waiting with (laughs) bated breath. Right. I bet you're going to be able to answer this because it's kind of an old one. Who's Irish and stays outside all summer? Oh, patio furniture. Yeah, that was an easy one. Okay, you mm-hmm. want to try again? or Okay. You... What do you call a snowman in the summer? Uh, melted. Oh, well, similar, a puddle. A puddle, mm-hmm. okay. All right, okay. okay. Enough, <laughs> enough, enough, enough of the hilarity. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, we're happy to have with us uh, for this next half hour, Steve Weidenkopf, who's kind of like our historian in Abstantia. This is probably, I think, maybe your fifth or sixth time with us, Steve. I I haven't been keeping an official count, and I. Uh, but uh, we're happy to have you back because it's. You always have uh, interesting uh, pieces of history to deal with us, and we're talking today about uh, uh, Saint John Fisher and Saint Thomas More, and today is is their feast day, and uh, rather than me rambling on, we'll let you introduce yourself and let's just get into it. Okay, great. Yeah, Doreen and Jack, thanks again for having me on the show, and. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know the exact count myself either, Jack, of how often I've been on the show. But it's been a number of times we've talked about a, a series of different historical topics. And uh, since, as you mentioned, today is the, the feast day of uh, Saint Thomas, Saint Thomas More, and Saint John Fisher, we figured we would talk about them and the, the happenings going on in England in the 16th century. And um, for the listeners, I'm a uh, adjunct professor of. Uh, at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology in um, Front Royal, Virginia, where I teach courses on church history and the Crusades. Um, so this is a, one of my favorite topics to talk about, actually, the, the time period of the Protestant Revolution in England and what was going on here uh, in the middle part of the 16th century. So, I mean, with that, we can talk a little bit about St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher, just introduce who they were, and then talk about what was going on in England at the time. So, uh, St. John Fisher was actually uh, a bishop, so he was Bishop of Rochester, the Diocese of Rochester in England at the time. Um, a very well-known man in England, in the English hierarchy. He was uh, a learned scholar, uh, lived a very penitential and austere life as well, and was known to be a, a very devout and pious uh, individual who took his responsibilities as bishop um, seriously. And he comes into the picture, we'll talk more about this here in a bit, but he comes into the, this, this story at this time in England because he serves a very important role. Um, he is the, if you will, the defense counsel, or we, we would say maybe the lawyer, um, the canon lawyer, if you will, for Catherine of Aragon uh, in a marriage tribunal which was conducted in England uh, in the 1530s to, to figure out... Um, you know, the the bond between uh, the marriage, the status of the marriage between King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. So we'll talk more about that in a second, but that's John Fisher. Um, Thomas More was a, um, a lawyer and a judge, so he was a layman, not a cleric, um, but also a well-known scholar, had written some scholarly works and some pieces of literature, 
um, before the 1530s. And then in 1529, he's made Lord Chancellor of England. So he serves a governmental role. He's the chief advisor, if you will, to King Henry VIII. Uh, and he holds that post for a number of years uh, until he resigns uh, that, that office as a result of some um, what he saw, saw as being aggressive moves by King Henry VIII to try to control the church in England. And so both of these men are going to ultimately um, be martyred for the faith because they will stand up to King Henry VIII, who actually does, um, you know, declare himself or have Parliament declare himself to be the head of the Church of England and initiates the, really the Protestant Reformation, Protestant Revolution, if you will, in England. Um, but that's the end of the story. So before we get to the end of the story, we kind of have to start at the beginning of the story and give a little bit more context. So what's going on in England during this time in, you know, the early part of the 16th century? So, you know, what happens here is that the Tudor family is at the stage. The Tudor family um, gains control of the monarchy in England in the late 15th century, in 1485, when Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, defeats King Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. That establishes the Tudor dynasty in England. And so Henry VII reigns for a period of time, uh, and then he dies, and he is succeeded by his son, King Henry VIII, who becomes king in 1509. Now, Henry VIII was a very interesting individual, right? We Most of us kind of have the image of him from that famous painting, you know, of a bigger man, um, you know, that's, that's a painting a little bit later in his life. But uh, he, he was early on in his younger years, in his 20s, so he was a very uh, athletic man. Uh, he was a brilliant uh, and a well-educated individual, obviously, uh, as a member of the nobility and as uh, you know, a member of the royal family. Um, he was actually very interested in theology, spent a lot of time studying theology uh, and learning the languages associated with theology. Uh, but Henry VIII was also, even as a young man, a very vain individual, um, was supposedly very handsome uh, as a younger man as well. So he liked to hang around with the ladies at court. Um, and that would get him into trouble later on in his life, as we'll see. But when he becomes king in 1509, he also, at that, in that same year, marries Catherine of Aragon. Now, Catherine of Aragon is an, is an interesting individual in history herself. She was married, or she was the daughter of King Fernando and Isabel of Spain, um, and she had previously been married to Henry's brother, um, Arthur Tudor, but only married for four months. Uh, and it was really a political marriage, uh, as was her marriage to King Henry VIII. But Catherine maintained uh, throughout her life that that union or that marriage between her and Arthur Tudor, Henry's older brother, was never consummated. And so in the eyes of the Church, in the eyes of God, right, not an actual marriage. Not an actual marriage. So, you know, Arthur died soon after their betrothal, if you will, um, four months later. And uh, so when Arthur died, then Henry becomes, you know, Henry, when he becomes king, he then marries uh, Catherine of Aragon. And they ultimately have five children, uh, Arthur, or I'm sorry, Henry and Catherine, but only one actually lives to adulthood, and that's Mary Tudor, who herself will become queen a little bit later on in the 16th century. Um, but Henry was concerned about trying to uh, have a male heir, right? So the only child of that union between he and Catherine that had uh, survived was Mary, a daughter, 
And although it wasn't unheard of in English history for a, a woman to become the sole monarch, to become queen, it was rare, uh, and the Tudor family was a bit um, concerned uh, about their place in uh, on the throne, because, again, they had usurped the throne, if you will, by taking it over by winning a battle. So there was a heavy kind of pressure or thought that there really needed to be a male heir. Um, and so Henry, and, and knowing his proclivities as a younger man, he began to, his eyes began to wander to some of the women who were associated with the royal court, some of these ladies-in-waiting, if you will. Um, and that occurred about 10 years into their marriage. So for the first 10 years of their marriage, um, Henry was faithful to Catherine, but about a decade in, he began to then um, go off on his little adventures. Um, and eventually, he really sets his eye on this one particular woman at court, and her name is Anne Boleyn. And she becomes the crucial figure in, in all that happens here in England in the 16th century. Um, she was, unlike other mistresses of Henry's, she didn't want to just be a mistress of the king. She wanted to have real power. She actually had ambition. She had, you know, uh, a thought to have control and power on her own. And so she really wanted to be queen. She wasn't content just to be Henry's mistress, as I said. So she convinces Henry that he needs to pursue a path of getting, of finding a way to get rid of Catherine officially and legally so that Anne could marry Henry and so that Anne could then become the queen of England. Um, and that's exactly what happened, right? She convinces Henry to pursue this, this path. And so Henry calls in, at the time, his Lord Chancellor, uh, a, a bishop by the name of, uh, and a cardinal, Cardinal Wolseley, who was also the Cardinal Archbishop of York and the Papal Legate in England. And Henry brings Wolseley in and says, hey, here's my situation. I no longer want to be married to Catherine. I like Anne. I want to be married to her. I need you to go and ask the Pope, uh, who at this time is Clement VII, to give me a, an annulment, right? Uh, and, and so I need you to pursue that and get that done. And so Cardinal Wolseley thought and told Henry, well, you know, sure, that shouldn't be that big of a deal. He, for, for all intents and purposes, he basically um, uh, told Henry this was kind of a done deal. It shouldn't be that hard of a, it shouldn't be a, a difficult thing to, uh, to uh, acquire. So he sent some representatives down to Rome to talk with Clement VII, uh, figure, you know, to, to pursue this path. But when these papal representatives show up, or I'm sorry, these royal representatives show up from Cardinal Wolseley, they go to, to Rome at a time when the city had just been sacked by imperial troops. Uh, Cardinal or uh, Pope Clement VII is actually in Castel uh, uh, San Angelo, uh, in the middle of the city. Who he's he's kind of fortified and hunkered down, trying to wait out uh, this imperial army that is that is still encamped in the city. Um, so he's in a really tenuous political and military situation. And so he's not really focused on listening to, you know, the pleas of the English king uh, for an annulment. To complicate matters even further, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time is uh, Charles V, and he is the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So you have these imperial troops, um, you know, in Rome, uh, you know, surrounding the Pope and conquering, you know, this kind of occupying his city, and so he's really not in a position to agree to this request from Cardinal Wolseley's representatives at all. 
Okay. Um, so that, that's kind of the situation where we are now here in 1527. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take a break right now, and uh, we'll come back, and we'll see how the uh, people are the, uh, the, the king's uh, uh, ambassadors were able to try to unwind this thing or whatever happened on the other side. It would be interesting to find out, but uh, stay with us. We've got a little break right now, and you're listening to Real Presence Live with Jack and Doreen Kennelly, and we're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about uh, the Protestant Revolution in England, and specifically St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More. So stay with us for more Real Presence Live. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. I think Catholic Radio gives us an opportunity to be family as a church, number one, um, to connect in places where distance is huge in our part of the country. And um, we are inundated with uh, the influence of secular media in our world today. Um, I think that Catholic Radio presents that worldview that is really necessary. And um, I really uh, feel that as parents in particular, those of you who have younger children, are really uh, blessed to have this opportunity to have programming that encourages young people to think outside the box that they're getting on all the other social media that they're exposed to. I think Catholic Catholic media is a world of friends. It's um, not only just a friend uh, as you listen to the people that you know. We need to be strengthened in our voice as a church and as uh, faithful Catholics. As you think about your future, there is one more thing you can do to add certainty to your life. Write or update your will and estate plan. If you pass away without a plan, all you have worked for in life, financially and emotionally, will be decided and divided by someone you may have never met before. We have some tools to help you in your planning. For more information, please visit our plan-giving website at rprlegacy.org or call Mike at 701-290-4503. At the University of Mary, we offer an education for the whole of life. Our values-based, flexible, and affordable education will prepare you for success and help you become a leader in your field. Whether you want to start your degree for the first time or continue your education, whether you are a working professional or want to pursue school full-time, join us for an education that will help you make a positive impact in our community. Discover the Mary difference. UMary.edu. That's UMary.edu. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Hey, thanks for staying with us on Real Presence Live. I'm Jack Kennelly, and my wife, Dreen, is with me, and we're talking to Steve Weidenkopf about St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. And uh, when we left at the break, uh, the Henry VIII had his ambassadors at Rome, and there was all sorts of things going on there, trying to get him an annulment, and it uh, wasn't looking so good for him. So, Steve, take it away. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're exactly right. It wasn't, wasn't looking so good for the, uh, for the English monarch here um, with his ambassador. So what the Pope does agree to, Clement Seventh, is he agrees to the opening of a what he called a marriage tribunal, where there would be a we would kind of think of it as a, a court of inquiry, right? Where 
Um, the question concerning the bond between uh, Henry and Catherine could be discussed. Testimony could be given, uh, witnesses called, you know, the testimony recorded. And then basically the, uh, the tribunal would produce a report and send it to Rome, and the Pope would review the report, and then he would make the final decision. And he was very clear to the English ambassadors that the decision on, on the validity of the bond between Henry and Catherine rested solely with the Pope. And so this tribunal was not going to be a, a uh, you know, decision body, if you will. It was not going to make a decision. It was just or even a recommendation, necessarily, although it was within its power to do so. But the ultimate decision rested with the Pope. So that's what happened. So these ambassadors go back to England. The Pope sorts out his issues with the Imperial Army down in, uh, in his city. And then as the ambassadors get back to um, England, a marriage tribunal is opened. Uh, and the, uh, King Henry comes before the tribunal and gives testimony concerning his relationship with Catherine and his, his uh, and their marriage. Catherine does the same thing, and both of the monarchs are also represented by counsel, right, by by lawyers or by clerics, um, because this is an ecclesiastical body that's meeting to discuss this. And so, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the show, St. John Fisher is one of the defense counsels, if you will, and defense lawyers, for Catherine, and she and he argues uh, in the tribunal uh, for the Queen, right, for Catherine and for her side of the story and for the holding um, of the bond, because although Henry wanted this annulment, Catherine did not. Ultimately, in the marriage tribunal, all of the bishops in England are present, um, and they do make, after the testimony and, and witnesses, there are, and the, the investigative procedures are conducted, they do produce a report, and they make a recommendation, and every bishop uh, in England supported the king's decision, or the king's request, for the granting of a declaration of nullity, um, except one, and that was St. John Fisher. St. John oh. Fisher was the only bishop of all of the bishops in England who did not side with the king. Instead, he sided with Catherine uh, and believed her, and believed you know that, that the bond should be upheld. Wow. Now, once that... Once that, yeah, once that, I mean, to think about that, right? Yes. All of your brother bishops uh, deciding to do, you know, pursue one particular path or, or just give in to the king's wishes, if you will, and you're the only one who doesn't. I mean, it's just an amazing amount of courage mm-hmm. on the part of John Fisher. Not not only, not so much courage, like political courage, but, but really, you know, sacramental courage, if you will, um, you know, spiritual courage to, to do what was right, Um in the face of heavy pressure, right, and knowing full well what the consequences of that decision could be, right? Was was um, excuse me? Was Henry VIII mm-hmm. putting pressure on them outside of the tribunal? Uh, I don't think there's necessarily uh, evidence of like any kind of real uh, person, you know, uh, oh, okay. pressure in terms of that we would think of it. But it was it was kind of generally understood. Mm-hmm. You know, people knew full well this is what the king wanted. Sure. Um, and so they, they knew that there was implicit pressure, if you will, more than explicit pressure. How many, um, excuse me, Steve, how many bishops were yeah. there in England at the time? Yeah, great question. There were about 300 bishops at oh, the time. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's an overwhelming number yes. of, of individuals who sided with the king, um, and which makes, again, he has a great question, which makes, again, St. John Fisher's stance even more um, you know, uh, courageous mm-hmm. and, and more, uh, more, more, you know, faithful. But so the uh, the request, you know, um, or the tribunal completes its procedures, um, 
And Catherine is very upset, obviously, with this recommendation, and so she sends a letter to the Pope protesting uh, the marriage tribunal and the recommendation that it develops. And and so the Pope then um, sends a letter back to England, um, uh, basically dissolving the marriage tribunal and and you know ceasing its efforts and saying you know just send me what you have now, send me you can do send me the recommendation, fine, and I'll review it and look at it. Um, now that decision to you know, dissolve the marriage tribunal without a decision by the Pope, um, you know, based on the testimony, really angered Henry, uh, because he kind of expected this to be a quick thing, and Cardinal Wolseley had almost promised him that it would be pretty quick and shouldn't be that difficult, but now that it's dragging out and taking time, its time, Henry was not a patient man, and so he actually got rid of Cardinal Wolseley. Uh, he was charged with, you know, Trumped up charges, um, you know, of of, of, bite, you know of, of not agreeing with the king, and in another matter, and so he was ordered to step down as Lord Chancellor, which he did, uh, and then that's when Thomas More rises into the picture, and he becomes Lord Chancellor, replacing Cardinal Wolseley. So he was a very important lawyer and advisor, and well known to the king. So the king appointed him to become Lord Chancellor, and so Thomas More accepted, so he becomes Lord Chancellor. At this particular time, Cardinal Wolseley will die in 1530, basically disgraced, right? He had chosen to side with the king, um, but then he didn't appease the king or please the king fast enough, and so he was put out the pasture, if you will, and then um, died of, of uh, old age and, and you know illness um, not soon after that. So that so now Henry's in a pickle, right? His whole This whole um, pursuit of an annulment he thought would be quick, it's not now. What does he do um, to kind of fast forward through the story and to, and to um, give you the end of the story up front? You know, the Pope does not side with Henry. He maintains the bond as being valid between Henry and Catherine. But come to the seventh doesn't make his decision. Come to the seventh doesn't make his decision until 1534. Uh, so it takes him seven years uh, to finally make a decision. Um, in between those seven years, what happens is Henry, again, impatient, decides to do something radical based on the, on the advice of two of his uh, advisors, Thomas Cromwell, who was the Lord Privy Seal, so a man who was, uh, um, you know, he held the king's seal, if you will, and so he was an advisor to the king, sat in all the meetings, read all the king's documents. He uh, made a suggestion to Henry, well, you know, Henry, if you're, you're king and you're, um, you have control over everything in England, uh, shouldn't that thought, shouldn't that thought, not that also include the church, right? All these secular lords listen to you and obey you, and sometimes the bishops listen to you and obey you, but they don't have to because they're ultimately loyal to the pope. So why don't you just have yourself declared head of the church in England, and then you can control everything? And Harry thought that was obviously a great idea, yeah. um, and so he was able to then insert as the Archbishop of Canterbury when that. Um, position came open, if you will, that diocese came open, he inserted into that into that um, diocese uh, another special advisor of him, uh, of his, named Thomas Cramer. And so Cramer was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, nominated by the king, approved by Pope Clement VII, but Cramer was a, a wily fellow, uh, and he was a secret Lutheran, and so he, um, when he became Archbishop, he reopened the marriage tribunal, had no authority to do so, but reopened it, and then, lo and behold, shockingly, declared the bond between Henry and Catherine to be invalid. Uh, he then allowed or witnessed the marriage between Ka- uh, Henry and Elizabeth or uh, Anne, and then uh, Anne Boleyn, and then soon thereafter, after that marriage, 
uh, a daughter was born to Henry and Anne, and that daughter is Elizabeth, who later on becomes Queen Elizabeth I. So all of these things are done without papal approval or papal authority and what have you. And then eventually, in 1534, after the Pope makes his decision, um, you know, defending the bond between Henry and Catherine, he calls King Henry VIII calls Parliament together, has them pass five different pieces of legislation, two of which, the Act of Secession and Act of Supremacy, basically established that Elizabeth is the heir to the throne, that Henry and Anne are legitimately married, and that Henry is now the king or the head of the church in England. And both of those acts, the Act of Secession, Act of Supremacy, required oaths to be taken by anybody in England. Uh, when the uh, royal officials came to St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher and asked them to take these oaths, supporting what the king had done here and breaking from Rome, both men refused to do so. They were both imprisoned in the Tower of London, and then they were both um, executed. St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More were both beheaded um, on different days, but we both we celebrate, we celebrate their feast day on this day together, June 22nd, because they were both uh, defenders of the faith and um, really defenders of marriage when you look at it and think about it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did John Fisher and Thomas More know each other? Uh, they knew of each other, most definitely, um, and it's possible. It's probably it's possible that they may have even you know seen each other, or, or um, I don't know of any specific instance where they it's, it's recorded that they did talk to each other or spend any real time with each other. Um, but definitely, they would have known of each other and and uh, and been aware of each other. Absolutely. One interesting fact of Saint Thomas or Saint John Fisher, I thought was interesting, is that while he was in prison in the Tower of London. Uh, the Pope at that time now is Paul III, and Paul decides to create John Fisher a cardinal while he's in prison. And he, he does that because he thinks that, you know, the, the, the king, Henry VIII, would not dare to execute a cardinal of the church. Um, but Henry didn't care. He went ahead and had John Fisher um, beheaded anyway. So, oh, my. It gives you a sense of who King Henry VIII actually was. Yes, right. a little bit of arrogance oh, Okay, there. great. <laughs> Steve, it's been another great half hour with you, and I hope we can have you on again sometime uh, to talk about another aspect of, uh, of Catholic Church history. Uh, but I guess that's all the time we have for today. And again, thanks for being with us. We hope to have you again. And for you listeners, stay tuned for more Real Presence Live on the other side of the break. We'll be talking about John, and we'll be talking to John and Barb Swaygarden about prayers and miracles. Uh, in their lives. In their lives. So it's it's actually hands-on experience. Stop.